for the month of August, we've explored some of the ministry philosophies of Grace Fellowship. These are values, mindsets, approaches, if you will, to ministry that make us distinctive as a church. We're committed to these philosophies, and we seek to live them out consistently. And if you call Grace your home church, it's important to me that you know what these are and even that you could explain them to someone else. We've looked at things like three-circle thinking. Then we explored methods or many, principles or few. Methods always change. Principles never do. Third, we unpack the whole idea of what it means for your life to be your ministry. And last week, we explored the philosophy of training up others to do the work of the ministry. In other words, we're committed to training and empowering others to do the ministry rather than attempting foolishly to do it all ourselves. Well, today, I want to unpack the fifth and final one that we will explore this month, and that is the ministry philosophy that we call balancing grace and truth. Balancing grace and truth. Now, hear me today. Some churches are very good at the truth part. Do you know what I mean? They teach God's word unswervingly and uncompromisingly, and they present it clearly. Truth, truth, truth. And that's what you're going to get at that church. On the other hand, other churches are more like grace, grace, grace. They tend to emphasize the fact that since we're all sinners and constantly falling short of God's standards, well, the main emphasis in our teachings, our conversations, our communication should be grace, 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 because God knows we all need it, right? Hey, personal question. I wonder which church you'd rather be a part of. Trust me, you can find both of those kinds of churches the truth kind, the grace kind, in abundance across our nation. But I'll tell you what you will not find in abundance, because they're pretty rare. You will not find that rare church in abundance that by God's empowerment can consistently balance the two, balance grace and truth in appropriate balance. That's the kind of church we are seeking to be. That's the kind of disciples we are seeking to build, ones who can balance grace and truth in all of their interactions. Now, one of the amazing things to me about Jesus is that we read in John's gospel, for instance, chapter one, that he was full of grace and truth. Listen to what John says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, catch this phrase, full of grace and truth. <laughs> I really like that. And because he was full of grace and truth, he could say to the woman at the well, You've been married five times, and you're living with a man who's not your husband. Would you agree with me? That's pretty blunt. I mean, that is truth, unadulterated truth. And she was so impressed 
with his grace. In other words, somehow the way he brought that truth to her, that she went into the city and said, come and see a man who told me everything about me, and it's all true, and yet I believe he's the Messiah. You see, there was something about Jesus that enabled him to never compromise the truth and yet be able to share it in a gracious, winsome way. Now, as, as Christians in ministry, we have such a wonderful message that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And as followers of Christ, we have a surefire formula for a life of flourishing. I believe the Christian life is meant to be a flourishing life, an abundant one. And that message that we have is so effective if it's shared and applied in the right spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Our message is so much more effective if it's spoken in the way Paul says there, humbly, gently, patiently, and in love. People who bombastically and arrogantly pound people with the truth usually end up, hear me now, driving them further away from God. John Stott put it like this. He said, truth without love is dogmatism. Love without truth is sentimentality. But when we speak the truth in love, ah, that's Christianity. So how do you live this way? How does a follower of Jesus balance grace and truth? Well, I think the story in John 8, of the adulterous woman is one of the best-known stories in the Bible. And I, I believe it'll provide a great case study for us to explore this idea of balancing grace and truth. Allusions from this classic story have made their way into our current language. Even today, someone will be about to criticize someone and and then they'll give the caveat, now, I don't want to cast any stones. That illusion comes right out of this story. It's captured our imagination for centuries. So let's dive in now and see what we can learn from Jesus about balancing grace and truth. First, I want you to look at what I would call the situation here, the situation Picking up now in John's Gospel, chapter 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, twice it says she was caught in the act of adultery, verse 3 and verse 4. So, 
this is not hearsay or, or rumor. They have found her in bed with a man who is not her husband. That is the situation. Now, now what's the, the, the broader context of this? This situation occurred immediately after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. The three biggies, three biggies were the Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the longest of those three. It was this raucous celebration lasting for eight days. Everybody left their homes. They built these makeshift tents or what some call booths out on the streets. It has this feeling of sort of an outdoor festival. They put up branches to shelter them. And people came from all over the place to be there. It was a time of joy and partying and celebration. That was the atmosphere. Lots of eating and drinking. A ripe context for somebody to engage in sexual immorality. You see, folks, when excitement is high and inhibitions are low, and maybe you've been drinking a bit too much, and your guard is down, people are going to flirt. And before long, you find yourself on a slippery slope. Listen, in the heart of every person is a thirst, a thirst for something we do not naturally have. And very often, that thirst of the human heart superficially surfaces on occasions like this. And it tries to drink at the fountain of sexual fulfillment, laughter, eating, drinking, celebration. If you've ever been to a multi-day party or music festival and you stayed up late, partied hard, you know how you tend to feel, right? Well, that's why I think Jesus' timing here is exquisite when in the previous chapter, John chapter 7, he, he tells us uh, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit. You see, everyone is thirsting for something which only God can give. And in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, look, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, <coughs> and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, God said to Jeremiah, look, if they don't come to me to drink, they'll go somewhere else to drink. The only problem is they'll dig their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold Hold water. And what's the result? Your thirst is never quenched. Your thirst is never quenched. That's, that's the picture that Jesus picks up on on this last day. That you're looking for something, you're looking for something to satisfy this deep need of the human heart. And you've been celebrating for eight days and you're drinking from broken cisterns that will never satisfy. And so Jesus gives an invitation. I invite you, he says, 
Come to me for some living water that will really satisfy. Now, back to our immediate story. The word used for woman here in John 8 is the Greek word gynaka. It's, it's often translated as wife, not exclusively so, but, but most often as wife. But it's, it's very likely that she's a married woman. Hence, it being adultery as opposed to fornication. Now, we don't know all the details, do we? Maybe her marriage had grown stale. Maybe she was looking for intimacy and belonging and affirmation and love with her husband, but, but just wasn't finding it. And it has driven her into the arms of another man. We don't know. As I say, perhaps they were drunk. Perhaps they were just flat out drunk and the grass started to look greener somewhere else. But whatever the scenario, she has crossed a serious line of morality and now she stands exposed, embarrassed, and condemned. But do you know something about this story? There's a glaring omission here. Would you agree? Where's the man? right? Where's the guy? It takes two to tango. The Pharisees and scribes are not interested in real justice or the man would be there too. The law of Moses that they profess to follow and revere was crystal clear about this matter. You can read it on your own. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That was under the Old Testament civil law of Israel. So both Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 speak to this, and they're both crystal clear. They're, they unanimously put the responsibility on the man as well as the woman. So, if justice were the main goal, then at the very least, both parties would be present. Well, that's the situation. But secondly, I want us to turn a corner, and I urge you to consider what I'll call the snare. The snare. Because the Pharisees and scribes, they have a clear agenda here. Their agenda is to discredit Jesus because Jesus has shown himself to be a friend of the weak, a friend of the poor, and a friend of the guilty. In fact, they, qual uh, they, they called him in, in, in Matthew eleven nineteen a friend, imagine this, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Imagine that. And that was not a compliment, by the way, in their minds. It was an insult that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, to the Pharisees, Moses, who wrote the law, was not a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In their minds, Moses was their judge. And so now they're setting this snare. We know that Jesus tends to side with the guilty. So let's see, let's see if he really is the Christ. Does he lean to the side of grace by showing compassion to this woman? Or, or does he lean to the side of truth by standing rigidly and uncompromisingly with Moses and, 
And maybe he'll even throw the first stone. Is it going to be grace or truth that wins the day? And so they pose a strategic question. Their question you can read in John 8, verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? John 8, 6, the very next verse, is very clear. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. The snare, this this trap they're trying to put Jesus in is between grace and truth. That seems to be the snare. You see, to these religious leaders, Jesus was too often siding graciously with sinners. He was showing more compassion than they felt the truth of Moses' law would allow. And so they wanted to catch him in a conundrum he simply could not escape. We've seen the situation and the snare, but third here, I want to talk about what I would call the shocker, (laughs) the shocker. I call it a shocker because the shocker, here, listen, the shocker to many people is that grace and truth can be held in appropriate tension. And Jesus does it beautifully here. Look on with me, starting in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still Standing there. Wow. What a tantalizing moment, huh? What a mysterious gesture, that is, of writing on the ground. But don't you wish you knew what he wrote? Boy, I do. Remember, Jesus had said the day before, we we just read it, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, Scripture says, streams of living water will flow out from within. Now, this is early the next morning. This may be a sort of fulfillment, I believe, of Jeremiah 17, which reads, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, it says there, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. He's invited them the previous day to drink of this living water, but... Those who turn away from me, I will write their names in the dust. Could this be a fulfillment of that? I I can't be dogmatic, but I believe it is. I I think he wrote Stephen, James, Joseph, Benjamin, Zebulun, Jesse, common names in that culture, whatever their names were. 
But then he stood up and said, if any of you, Stephen, James, Joseph, if any of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And it says, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. You ever wondered why the older ones first? (laughs) As people grow older, they either become more loving, kind, gentle, patient, or they become more harsh, judgmental, impatient, even bitter. And the track record of Pharisaism was arrogance and judgmentalism. Maybe, just maybe, the older ones walked away first because they knew deep in their hearts that they had turned away and forsaken the Lord and his living water. And Jeremiah 17 said, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. These men and the woman herself had forsaken the spring of living water. That's why she was drinking at some other fountain. So these Pharisees thought, hey, they'd use this woman as a pawn to ensnare Jesus. But Jesus... This is so cool. Jesus turned the snare on them. The exposers had been exposed. Self-righteousness and arrogance are as offensive to God. Listen to me, friends. They're as offensive to God as any sexual sin. Those of us who've been in church a long time need to especially remember that. These men who brought this woman to Jesus because she had been caught in this act of adultery themselves were carrying boatloads of sin. And when he wrote their names on the ground, if that's indeed what he did, and said, which of you are without sin? They knew I'd better get out of here quick. Not because they were repentant, but because they were smug and they didn't want Jesus to expose any of their secret sins. What an amazing story this is in the ministry and life of Jesus. I read on now in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I've got a question for you. Are you listening? I've got a question. Is Jesus soft on sin here? Of course not. Jesus gave his life for sin. Jesus is not soft on sin. Jesus brought grace and truth together in perfect balance in this situation. And that is shocking to some people. By the way, when you became a Christian, when you become a Christian, when you come to Jesus, you come exactly as you are. Too often, the church has given the message, hey, get your act together now. Get your life together first, then come and say hello to Jesus. That's a bad message. We've got to understand that Jesus meets people right where they are Are you listening? That gets messy. As a church, 
we must do the same as Jesus and meet people where they are. And that's going to get messy. That's why we must have grace and truth together in balance if we're going to deal with the messiness of a church that's really reaching people for Jesus Christ. That's going to be a messy church, friends. Are you ready to be a part of a messy church? Why? Because if you're really reaching people for Christ, you're going to have a lot of people around who don't have their act together. Are you hearing that? And the message of the gospel is that no one really has their act together. That's what grace is about. But that makes the Pharisee types of the church very uncomfortable. When Jesus went home with Zacchaeus to eat at his house, remember what the people muttered? He's gone home to be the guest of a sinner. The implication, the implication of that is if he really knew what a sinner Zacchaeus was, he wouldn't eat with him in a million years. But that is absolutely wrong. Are you hearing me today? It's because he knew what sort of a man Zacchaeus was that he ate at his home. We need that same appropriate balance of grace and truth as we represent Jesus in our world today. What I love about this woman is that she knows her sin. I believe she's broken over it. Read it. Read the story carefully. She never defends herself. She doesn't even say, hey, hey, Jesus, where's the man? He seduced me. No, she's not pointing fingers. She's not deflecting blame. She's not making excuses. She just stands before Jesus. Look, this is who I am. Forget about anybody else. She knows her sin, and she's set free by the forgiveness of Jesus. As we wrap up today, I'm curious about something. I really am. I'm curious about this. So stick with me here. You may remember, I, I asked you earlier which kind of a church you'd rather be a part of. Remember that? A church that's like all grace, 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 or a church that's truth, truth, truth. Go with me here. I got a theory. All right, I got a theory, and my theory is that your answer to that may correlate strongly, it may correlate strongly to whom you identify with most in this story. Let, let, let me explore some options. Do you identify most strongly with the woman whose secret sin has been exposed? Forget gender, whatever your gender do you identify most with her in the story? Perhaps you're grappling with a lot of guilt over patterns of sin in your own life and it's eating you alive and you need relief. Perhaps it's been exposed. Or maybe you're filled with anxiety that's going to be exposed and you don't know what you're going to do. If that's you, my guess is you might, at least for now, prefer a church with more grace. Or, 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 maybe, 
You identify most strongly with her unnamed partner. We never got his name, did we? I, I, I wonder if her partner was watching from the shadows, wondering, how's this going to turn out? I mean, futures are at stake here. And you know that you are at least partially responsible. Again, if that's you today, my guess is you might, at least for now, prefer a church with a bit more grace. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you honestly identify most with the men who are holding the rocks. Again, forget gender, man or woman, young or old, you feel there is an injustice and you want to see, you want to see somebody pay. Because the truth, for God's sake, is important. God's law cannot be snubbed. You play, you pay. That's your philosophy. Maybe you're bitter over those who talk about the church being more gentle and kind. And though, you know, with those people who are broken and hurting. You, you may be prone to thank God that you're not as other people are. And deep in your soul, you love to see certain people and certain sins publicly lambasted. And you feel rather smug in your religiosity. If that's you today, my guess, my guess is that you'd prefer a church that leans to the side of truth. Whoever you identify with most, I've got good news for you. Jesus is the friend of sinners. No, he is not soft on sin. Let me say it again. He died so that sin could be dealt with and forgiven. He is never soft on sin, but he forgives our past. Remember the words, neither do I condemn you. And he empowers our future. Remember the words, go now and leave your life of sin. He brings grace and truth together in perfect balance in our lives, and he calls us as individuals and as a church to do the same. That is one of our most precious philosophies of ministry at Grace Fellowship. So, as I finish today, I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to talk to Jesus and do business with the Lord and thank him that he will step into your world, your situation, your sin, whether the broken woman in adultery or the unnamed partner or the Pharisee wanting to throw the stone, he will step in and forgive you and cleanse you. And he will, through the Holy Spirit, begin to work in you and change you from the inside out. We're gonna pray together now. And let's take just a little while, maybe, maybe a half minute or so of silence. It's going to be really quiet. And I would like to encourage you to talk to Jesus during this period of silence. It's going to be brief. Talk to him about your own life and where it is that God, the Holy Spirit, has spoken to you and called you to respond to him in honesty, in confession, and in repentance. And after a moment of silence... I'll voice a prayer for all of us. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that whoever we find ourselves identifying with most strongly in this story, I thank you that you're a friend of us sinners. And your grace is so real. Thank you that you're never soft on sin, but that you bring truth and grace together in perfect balance in our lives. That's exactly what we need. So Lord, may we find freedom in you today as we hear your voice, whatever our particular sin may be, as we hear your voice saying, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.